have another episode of Big Talk with Michael Glab and Alex Ashkin. I'm Alex Ashkin and our guest tonight is the fascinating, the brilliant, the insatiably curious Fez Kidwai. Fez, how are you doing today? Hi, hey Alex. Uh, thank you for that wonderful introduction. I'm doing very well, my man. And thank you. Uh, thank you for having me. Let's just jump right on in. You, Fez, are a psychiatry resident over at SUNY Upstate New York, over in Syracuse. You were also a 2020 graduate of the Kansas City University of Medicine and Biosciences. You're a public health professional. You're an impassioned health equity advocate, philosopher. You've done a lot so far, and you're, you know, 29. Have you turned 30 already? Uh, not quite, but soon. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, like you've done a lot before your 30th birthday. So what motivates you? How do you keep up this rate of work? <laughs> uh, well, it's uh, pretty humbling when you put it that way. I, I really appreciate it. it it's, it's, it's one that it's an, a question I struggle to answer. It's by and large, you know, I, I, I stand on the shoulders of many people, you know, who've been a, indispensable to whatever success that I've been able to garner in life. I think that, um, you know, I was shown kindness and presented with opportunities at the right time by the right people. And, you know, being an immigrant, especially early on, I don't, I don't know if I could have really done anything for these folks when they showed me this kindness. Perhaps I still can't, but so they really were doing it out of the goodness of their heart. So I feel like I have to, um, I think it's incumbent upon me, morally speaking, to, to do what I can to make whatever small change that I can uh, in life. So I think that whatever privilege that one is able to garner, I think it's incumbent upon one to try and leverage it for a better world. Pretty humbling. As somebody who views himself as a philosopher, I think we all kind of recognize that there's a bunch of different ways we kind of measure self-worth and the idea of using our talents to create utility to put things out into the world are is very important mm -hmm. you mentioned that you are an immigrant and for our listeners you immigrated to the united states when you're about 16 with mm -hmm. your family from pakistan mm -hmm. and you guys moved here to bloomington that must have been one a monumental change but did that sort of change, particularly in such a formative time, have a specific or significant impact on you? I think absolutely. Uh, your teens are, you know, the most formative years of your life. You're just trying to figure out who you are, uh, what you like, what you don't like. To make that change in, uh, you know, fairly turbulent time in anyone's life, I, I think, I think was challenging. But um, I had the great benefit of, of having a great support system. And firstly, with my own family, my parents, uh, my brother, and, and uncle and cousins were already pretty established in, in Bloomington, then in no small part to the teachers and the friends that you, you make along the way. Um, Bloomington is a pretty special place. Because of uh, IU, it attracts people from all over the world. I mean, our, our high school, Bloomington North, I think we, we were pretty well represented as far as uh, as 
the international community is concerned. So it certainly was a shock, if you will. But uh, I don't know if any other community would have given me the kind of adjustment period uh, that uh, Bloomington gave me. You went to IU for your undergrad. Go Hoosiers. <laughs> um, <laughs> One of the things that I always found so unique about you is you triple majored in chemistry, biology, and philosophy. Right. Which the chemistry and biology, that makes sense. Yeah. But the philosophy in there is sort of that like that little extra spice that makes people sort of scratch your head and say, huh, why did you choose those three majors? <laughs> So I definitely majored in uh, in chemistry and uh, in philosophy. Biology I minored in, but I think I was just a couple of credits away from having a major. You know, chemistry was something that I was just interested in. It uh, I was I was good at it, uh, enjoyed it. I didn't really have a lot of direction, to be honest with you, Alex. I thought I I want. Growing up, I wanted to be a fireman, and I think I I attribute that to watching the '90s cult classic Backdraft on, uh, oh, yeah. on firefighters, a thoroughly underrated film in my estimation. Obviously, that, that, that didn't pan out. So when I went to college, you know, I didn't really know what I wanted to do in life. And philosophy, uh, you know, I'd love to give a sophisticated answer, like uh, akin to, you know, me being, me wanting to pursue a Renaissance education, wanting to know everything about everything. But the real answer is there was someone that I was fond of who was taking uh, this philosophy course called um, Philosophical Reflections on Evolution and Religion. And what happened was... You know, the first week of class, I kind of chickened out and trying to, to, to talk to her. Uh, and then the next week with strengthened resolve, I went back into the, I went, I went in on Monday and I said, okay, this is the week. She wasn't there on Monday. She wasn't there on Wednesday. She wasn't there on Friday. So essentially I was. <laughs> you got locked up. in. It was very serendipitous uh, because it, it really worked out. The person teaching that class was Dr. Timothy O'Connor. Terrific teacher, great philosopher. He was also the head of the department at the time, and um, he took an interest in me. I took an interest in in him, and he and I would talk constantly during office hours. And he encouraged me to take another philosophy course. Uh, I did, and then it just it just started like that. I just kept adding a course after course after course, and that's how I ended up uh, with uh, with philosophy on top of chemistry and biology. I want to jump into a little bit of the conversation about philosophy and medicine you've mentioned in a few different writings you like to kind of quote aristotle and saying that man is inherently a political creature what are the things that people inherently and immediately link philosophy and uh, medicine is hippocrates and namely the hippocratic oath Mm -hmm. Literally, as I was studying it up on all this, I realized the like throwaway line of first do no harm actually doesn't even show up in it. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone is like, oh, that's that's the start of it. It's like, yeah. no, it, in fact, not in it. But there actually is a modern version, in a sense, of the Hippocratic Oath. It starts off with, I swear to fulfill to the best of my ability and judgment this covenant. 
I will respect the hard-won scientific gains of those physicians in whose steps I walk and gladly share such knowledge as is mine with those who are to follow. I will apply for the benefit of the sick all measures that are required, avoiding those twin traps of overtreatment and therapeutic nihilism. I will remember that there's an art to medicine as well as a science and that the warmth, sympathy, and understanding may outweigh the surgeon's knife or the chemist's drug. I will not be ashamed to say, I know not, nor will I fail to call in my colleagues when the skills of another are needed for a patient's recovery. It goes on, but those are the lines that really stuck out to me because in reading your various writings, your speeches, that that seems to be so core to your form of advocacy. Is there a certain part to the oath or certain philosophers that you were exposed to that really sort of helped create this sense of um, duty? What sort of good you can provide mm. through public policy work, through you know your advocacy? A lot of that. Well, a lot of the the modern oath, you know, has great. Uh, carries a lot of valence with me, but but I suppose the part that carries particular resonance is just approaching the job with uh, great humbleness and awareness. It's, from my perspective, uh, humility and uh, self-awareness is key. There's always so much to learn. There's always something you don't know. Medicine is a very humbling profession, and it, 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 it doesn't pay to approach the job as as knowing everything. So you rely a lot on uh, other people to, to not just bail you out, but to actually provide good care. So that keeps you curious, that keeps you, uh, keeps you humble. And psychiatry in particular, I don't know if you can be uh, a good psychiatrist if you're not simultaneously uh, walking this journey of introspection. Uh, you need to know what things trigger you. Uh, you need to know what your biases are. I don't think that it's possible uh, or helpful to pretend that we don't have certain biases that we carry with us at, at all times. And it, it, that's to the detriment of, of the patients. So I believe that by knowing ourselves a bit better, we can perhaps erect our own safeguards against those biases from playing out in how you know one provides care. If, if there are certain uh, things that I know will trigger a really emotional response in me that could affect the way I, my, my clinical judgment, then it's, it's best that I be, I be aware of that. So that part, I think, it, it is crucial. Sometimes you do meet patients, unfortunately, who've done uh, horrible things. As most people, you know, you, you can have a very visceral response to that. I don't think that's a bad thing. I think that's part of being a human being. Uh, it's also where our empathy for other people comes from. To ignore that visceral response, to pretend that that doesn't exist, I, I don't think is helpful. And the, and, and the converse is true as well. If you feel like there are certain vulnerabilities that patients present with that you that may also cloud your judgment, you know that that's also a, a place where you perhaps need to take a step back and and see if you're being led in one way. Uh, one direction uh, too much. That part, I think, is really 
and indispensable. And then uh, the other, the over, the underlying theme of, of the of the oath, the, the modern version, is this this theme of kindness. You know, I, I tell my medical students the, the, the same thing that some of them, for instance, aren't particularly interested in psychiatry. You know, some of them want to be surgeons, some of them want to be OBGYNs, other specialties, which is obviously completely fine. Uh, we all have our passions in life. It's what makes uh, medicine a, good, a great profession, what makes life worth living, the, the heterogeneity that you see. But what I always tell the folks that are not particularly looking to go into psychiatry is that if you learn anything from me is that I try to make sure that no one on the treatment team can outmatch me in terms of showing uh, kindness and caring for the patient. And by doing so, at least for me personally, I think that uh, it allows me, to, allows me to sleep at night, to be perfectly honest. Because you know there are there are bad there are bad days when uh, you just a patient doesn't respond to therapy and uh, maybe there's a setback in their care. Sometimes you lose a patient. So in, uh, as an intern, you know you have six months of medicine and then six months of psychiatry in your first year. So uh, my first six months uh, of residency were spent on medicine, and uh, I lost a patient they basically came in with internal bleeding and there really wasn't much that could be done. In fact, more intervention would have in probably led to a more painful death and, 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 or, and if there was some way of preserving life, uh, it wouldn't be on the terms that the patient wanted for themselves. So making sure that I took care of everything in terms of, you know, speaking to the family, arranging, hospice follow-up with the social worker, um, making sure that the team was on board, doing everything that I could in my power to uh, make sure that all the family had to care about and the patient had to care about was just going home. It, it wasn't, so the satisfaction from that was really just this clarity, knowing that there, there really wasn't anything that I, more that I could have done in that, in that moment to, to take care of that patient. So there was no jumping up and and enjoy obviously quite the opposite. It, it was very, it's a heavy emotion when you when you lose a patient. It's really one of the worst feelings you can have. But knowing that you did everything you could and knowing that you could not have been any kinder, you know, that's what that's what allows you to go another day. That's what allows you to sleep at night. You know, my conscience is is, is clean. Um, and then I can come back in and do it the next day. Honestly, I think that's one of the things that can be very difficult for people who are not in the medical profession to sort of see is that we, we really, for the most part, unless you've lost someone who has dealt with an acute issue or some sort of emergency care, it's very hard to get that perspective. So thank you for sharing that. You actually have been pretty open about your approach to medicine public health and your personal beliefs regarding that and have uh, both written several op-eds and given uh, multiple speeches throughout your time uh, in medical school and mm -hmm. as a public health professional. In 2016, you authored an op-ed for the Boston University School of Public Health, mm -hmm. and you made an argument that there's sort of a very clear and important connection between public health and politics, understanding sort of the uh, connection between someone's 
health and the socioeconomic status and context that they live in. And you argued that one of the most critical things a practitioner can do is approach each situation with a belief or a practice of radical compassion Mm -hmm. towards their subject. So first, what is some of those initial steps that public health officials, community members can do to begin that journey to understanding and practicing radical compassion? So radical compassion, as I understand it, is, you know, not just feeling sympathy for someone or being able to empathize with them, but taking that next step to perhaps improving their life, you know, and that ties into uh, not just providing, you know, a Band-Aid solution, but fundamentally trying to restructure the the system that uh, that that sustains their uh, their situation, and 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 there's there's really an intellectual answer that I can give from having my public health hat on, and there's perhaps a more non-intellectual question uh, answer that I can provide as well. But intellectually speaking, first and foremost, you got to make sure that you understand the community whom you're trying to help. You need to know their history. You need to know. Uh, what they need. You need to know what they want. Uh, You need to build uh, traction with them. You need to gain their confidence. Uh, So many, I mean, if you are, you could be as well-intentioned a person in the world, but if you're not, if you're not uh, gaining traction with stakeholders, and if you have, if you have no interest in listening to what uh, the community is actually telling you, then, you know, the difference between public health and flat-out imperialism quickly disappears. So you got to make sure that you're doing it for uh, what the community needs. And for that, it's, you need to have uh, a needs assessment, which is foundational. Try and figure out what it is that that community needs and then tailor your approach to it. Uh, Two communities are very, no one community is like the other, which means that, and that's why public health is so difficult because there are no panaceas. Not one thing is ever going to uh, change the tide or address a a problem that you're trying to rectify. So you need to have a very tailored solution or a series of tailored solutions to to, to improving uh, improving a community's healthcare. So that's the that's the the intellectual answer. And I guess the uh, uh, the non-intellectual uh, one would be that. Well, I guess it's not necessarily non-intellectual. But I guess one that's perhaps a bit more accessible is that I believe that we're at that point as far as, you know, radical compassion is concerned that the first step towards improving a community's health is just ensuring that they have access to health care. And I think that it's time now for health to be recognized as a fundamental human right, not so much as a negative right, where if, let's say here in the United States, if uh, you want to get health care, the government is not going to stand in your way and prevent you from getting health care. Okay. Uh, but it needs to become a positive right where the government actually has to make sure that you have access to health care and that you have health care. So for me, uh, that's the cause of my life personally. And I think that if you want to improve a community's health, we need to first and foremost ensure that they have access to it. And access in and of itself entails so many different factors. That means, you know, geographical access. That means a culture uh, or employment where you can actually take time off and go to see the doctor, that you're not penalized 
uh, you don't lose money for seeing the doctor. A, a culture where uh, there is a, um, uh, that allows for you to have early intervention. Yeah, there, there are multiple things that, 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 you know, something like access entails. So uh, that would, you know, for me, uh, that would be a, a good place to, place to start. The conversation about should healthcare be a positive, positive right really mm-hmm. is something that is becoming more along mm-hmm. the forefront of a lot of policy and political discussions. Combining that and the earlier part of your answer sort of saying that the desire to promote public health can uncomfortably lurch its way into imperialism Mm -hmm. brings me to my next point, which is we haven't really discussed COVID. It has irreparably, and I don't, I always like saying forget or for ill, but let's be honest here for Mm -hmm. ill. Um, (laughs) It's for some interesting changes and, paradigm shifts, but I don't think anyone wanted to uh, go through a global pandemic to get these changes. It's changed our communities. It's changed how people have lived their lives. You began your psychiatry residency Mm -hmm. during the middle of this pandemic. During this practice, have you noticed a particular impact from COVID on patients' mental health, whether it be chronic or acute? I'm sure you remember, and I'm sure the listeners will remember as well, that when the pandemic really started ramping up, we were hearing refrains like, oh, COVID is the great justify- a great equalizer. We're all uh, in this together. And very quickly, we learned that that was uh, a bunch of bull, because in an unequal society, anything that treats everybody equally leads to very unequal results. I think Madonna caught a lot of flack for that as well, um, for, for saying that on, on, on Twitter. And I later, one day this occurred to me, that I think one of the monikers that she had was the, the material girl. And I felt, well, funny bit of irony. Um, <laughs> I don't know why I'm hating on Madonna. There's no reason to. But, um, uh, but it's to make a point that, you know, COVID has only exacerbated the, the fundamental inequality that already exists in our country and the world that's borne out by the evidence that, you know, black and brown people in the global South will suffer more, will suffer the brunt of this pandemic. And then the, the real, uh, the, the continued injustice being that vaccinations may, may not be available to the global South until possibly 2023, 2024, uh, because of all the rich countries having for the lack of a better word, just hoarding all the all the supplies, and um, here in the United States, still uh, because uh, black and brown people have traditionally struggled for access to care, uh, they're lacking behind in, in vaccination rates as well. Mm-hmm. So all of that is is very very concerning as um, you know as, as a physician in the United States at this point. Um, you have you know I think another study showed that people suffering from schizophrenia have seen a, um, uh, a threefold increase in mortality, and that's after adjusting for uh, demographics, sex, and um, other comorbidities. So, you know, I wouldn't want to pontificate on what, what I think the reasons are for that, but, you know, certainly thinking about things like lacking access uh, certainly comes to mind. Oh, and I want to clarify that uh, actually interpersonal violence presentations at the ED were the one, were the was the one measure that, that dropped, which is actually pretty 
concerning because, you know, that means that people are probably trapped at home with their, with their, um, you know, with their assaulters or their, their victims. So that's pretty terrifying uh, statistic, really. As far as personal anecdotes, you, you definitely hear personal stories of how, you know, people are, were becoming further isolated from their, from their loved ones. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are many patients that come to mind, but specifically uh, some in, in the geriatric population who were stuck in their rooms for three to four months not being able to see your grandchildren, not being able to see your children. I mean, that's, that's devastating, you know, and, and going back to mentioning the, the rise in uh, overdose presentations to the ED, uh, you know, it, it's not hard to see that connection. So you self-medicate when you're feeling hopeless. All the things that, that I've, I've personally seen during this, during this pandemic, um, it's brutal. A lot of people struggling. And something that just personally, I, I've always been a huge sort of advocate for people to do what they can to take care of themselves. And mm-hmm. I mean, it's incredibly difficult during these times because sometimes we also just don't know who to contact or how to sort of best approach this. And sort of a little bit of a more broad sense, mental health treatment and maintenance has always been a little bit stigmatized, yeah. particularly sort of as a part of public discussion. Do you have any good advice for folks who are trying to sort of take their first step to begin working on their mental health or any sort of signs to look out for Mm -hmm. when more acute intervention might be necessary? So first, I would just give the listeners the the number for the National Suicide Prevention Hotline. It's 800-273-8255, 800-273-8255. So if you're uh, feeling, you know, you're having those persistent thoughts of, of suicide, you know, I, I encourage everyone to call the number and get help. And uh, as far as identifying the, uh, you know, the worrying signs, I mean, the big, the big ones are obviously, you know, uh, behavioral changes that you see in a patient, they become more, or in a person, they become more withdrawn, they become more isolated, more anxious, start uh, using substances more like uh, over, uh, you know, drinking to excess or overdoing, um, uh, smoking or even uh, smoking marijuana, other recreational drugs. Uh, those are all concerning signs. Hyperactivity, disturbed sleep. So there's uh, continuing to endorse hopeless thoughts. Uh, those, so those are all um, concerning signs. Uh, and I think the best way, um, best way to get uh, access is to, you know, really start by first talking to someone, uh, talking, telling, telling a friend, and then also friends and family members doing their part and checking up on someone that they think is, is struggling, making sure that they also identify those signs in their, uh, in their loved one. And, uh, you know, you're struggling with these persistent thoughts of suicide, uh, you know, call the hotline and uh, go to the emergency room um, and, get, and get, get started on, on your treatment. And uh, for access, I, for resources in your own community, I would recommend uh, uh, calling the National uh, Alliance on Mental Illnesses uh, uh, number. It's 1-800-950-6264. That's 1-800-950-6264. And they, someone can help you get in touch with, uh, with resources in your own community. Fez Kidwai, mental health professional, public health professional, public health equity advocate, 
Thank you so much for joining us on Big Talk. I'm Alex Ashkin, and to all of our listeners, have a great night. Bye.